Welcome to a Slapshot episode of the Russian Rulers podcast. Today, we're going to be doing some readings from what I consider to be the most monumental piece of work on Russian history called, apropos, A History of Russia. It's by professors Nicholas Ryazanovsky and Mark Steinberg. And I want to thank Dr. Steinberg for allowing me to read from his book. It is now in its eighth edition. Uh, I remember reading the first two in my classes back at Queens College back in the 70s in Russian history, and it's still relevant today. It's an amazing piece of work. Uh, I, I highly recommend anyone interested in Russian history, if you have to buy one book on the history of Russia, it is A History of Russia by uh, Ryazanovsky and Steinberg. And again, thank you, uh, Professor Steinberg, for uh, giving me permission to read from your book. I want to start with religion in Russia, especially Muscovite Russia, during the 17th, 17th century. It's an amazing period of time. Uh, this is post-Kiev. The Russian Orthodox Church now is, uh, you know, gotten away from uh, Byzantium, is now on its own. It has its own patri patriarch, the head of the, the church. And there's some real uniqueness about Russia at the time. So I'd like to read from his book. And... Uh, I start with uh, religion and church and the schism. Religion occupied a central position in Muscovite Russia and reflected the principal aspects and problems of Muscovite development, the growth and consolidation of the state, ritualism and conservatism, parochialism and the belonging to a larger world, ignorant, self-satisfied pride, and the recognition of the need for reform. As already mentioned, the expansion and strengthening of the Muscovite state found a parallel in the evolution of the church in Muscovy. The church councils of 1547, 49, 51, and 54 strove to improve ecclesiastical organization and practices and eliminate various abuses. In 1547, 22 Russians were canonized, and in 1549, 17 more. The resulting consolidated national pantheon of saints represented a religious counterpart to the political unification. The Hundred Chapter Council of 1551 dealt, as its name indicates, with many matters in the life of the Church. The Council of 1554 condemned certain Russian heretics and heresies which had roots either in Protestantism or in the teachings of the non-possessors. None of them, it might be noted gained popular support. The rising stature of the Russian Church at a time when many other Orthodox churches, including the Patriarchate of Constantinople itself, fell under the sway of Muslim Turks, and this increased Muscovite confidence and pride. References to the Holy Russian Land, to Holy Russia, date from the second half of the 16th century. In 1589, as we know, Muscovy obtained its own Patriarch. Some later incumbents of this position, such as Hermogen, Filaret, and Nikon, were to play different but major roles in Russian history. The upgrading of numerous Muscovite sees after the establishment of the Patriarchate was followed by a further expansion of the church when Ukraine, which included the ancient Metropolitanate of Kiev and several other dioceses, joined Moscow in 1654. It should be added 
that the church, especially the monasteries, enjoyed enormous wealth in land and other possessions in spite of the repeated efforts of the government to curb its holdings and particularly to prevent its encroachments on the gentry. The great split or schism in the 17th century, Raskol in Russian, revealed serious weaknesses in the apparently mighty and monolithic Muscovite church. Over a long period of time, errors in translation from the Greek and other mistakes had crept into some Muscovite religious texts and rituals. Tsar Michael had already established a commission to study the matter and make the necessary corrections. Some visiting Orthodox dignitaries also urged reform. But in the face of general ignorance, inertia, and opposition, little was done until Nikon became patriarch in 1652. The new head of the church proceeded to act in his usual determined manner, which before long became a drastic manner. The reign of Tsar Alexis was witnessing a religious and moral revival in the church, an effort to improve the performance of the clergy and to attach a higher spiritual tone and greater decorum to various ecclesiastical functions. Yet, once Nikon introduced the series of corrections, many leaders of this revival, such as Stefan Fonitviev, Ivan Neronov, and the celebrated archpriest Avakum, or Habakuk, turned against him. In 1653, they accused him of heresy. To defeat the opposition, the patriarch proceeded to obtain the highest possible authority and support for his reforms. In 1654, a Russian church council endorsed the verification of all religious texts. Next, in response to inquiries from the Russian church, the Patriarch of Constantinople called a council that added its sanction to Nikon's reforms. A monk was sent, was sent to bring 500 religious texts from Mount Athos and the Orthodox East, while many others arrived from the Patriarchs of Antioch and Alexandria. A committee of learned Kievan monks and Greeks was set up to do the collecting and correcting. Another Russian council in 1656 also supported Nikon's undertaking. Nikon widened the scope of the reform to include the ritual in addition to texts, introducing in particular the sign of the cross in the Greek manner with three rather than two fingers. But the patriarch's opponents refused to accept all the high authorities brought to bear against them and stood simply on the Muscovite precedent to keep everything as their fathers and grandfathers had it. They found encouragement in Nikon's break with the Tsar in 1658 and the ineffectiveness of the cleric who replaced him at the head of the church. To settle matters once and for all, a Russian church council was held in 1666 and another church council, attended by the patriarchs of Alexandria and Antioch, who also represented those of Constantinople and Jerusalem, convened later that year and continued in 1667 in Moscow. This great council, which disposed, deposed Nikon for his bid for supreme political power, considered the issue of his reforms, listened to the dissenters, and in the end completely endorsed the changes. The opponents had to submit or defy the church openly. It is remarkable that, although no, no dogmatic or doctrinal differences were involved, 
Priests and laymen in considerable numbers refused to obey ecclesiastical authorities, even though the latter received the full support of the state. The Raskol began in earnest. The old believers, or old ritualists, rejected the new sign of the cross, the corrected spelling of the name of Jesus, the tripling instead of doubling of the hallelujah and other emendations, and hence rejected the church. Persecution of the old believers was soon widespread. Avakum himself, whose stunning autobiography represents the greatest document of old belief and one of the great documents of human faith, perished at the stake in 1682. The Solovetsky Monastery in the far north had to be captured by a siege that lasted from 1668 to 1676. Apocalyptic views prevailed among the old believers, who saw in the church reform the end of the world, and in Nikon the Antichrist. It has been estimated that between 1672 and 1691, over 20,000 of them burned themselves alive in 37 known communal conflagrations. Yet, surprisingly, the old belief survived. Reorganized in the 18th century by a number of able leaders, especially by the Denisov brothers, Andrew and Simeon, it claimed the allegiance of millions of Russians up to the revolution in 1917 and after. It exists today, with no canonical foundation and no independent theology to speak of. The old belief divided again and again, but it never disappeared. The main cleavage came to be between the Popovsky and the Bespopovsky, those who had priests and those who had none. For although the old believers refused to change the title and the texts or the least detail in the ritual, they found themselves without priests and thus without the liturgy, without most of the sacraments, and in general, without the very core of traditional religious life. Bishops were required for elevation to the priesthood, and no bishops joined the old belief. Some dissenters, the Popovsi, bent all their efforts to obtain priests by every possible means, for instance, by enticing them away from the established church. The priestless, priestless, on the other hand, accepted the catastrophic logic of their situation and tried to organize their religious life along different lines. It is from the priestless old believers that most Russian sects derive. But all this takes us well beyond the Muscovite period of Russian history. The Raskol cons constituted the only major schism in the history of the Orsh Russian Orthodox Church. It was, in an important sense, the opposite of the Reformation in the West. Christians turned against their ecclesiastical authorities because they wanted changes. In Russia, believers revolted because they refused to accept even minor modifications of the traditional religious usage. Many scholars have tried to explain this strange phenomenon of the Raskol. Thus, Shapov and numerous others have stressed the social composition of the old believers and the social and economic reasons for their rebellion. The dissenters were originally and continued to be mostly well-established peasants and traders. Their action could, therefore, be interpreted as a protest against gentry domination and the entire oppressive Muscovite system.
more immediately, they reacted against the increased ecclesiastical centralization under Nikon, which led to the appointment of priests. Formerly, they had been elected in northern parishes, and to the loss of parish autonomy and democracy. In addition to being Democrats, so certain historians have claimed, the old believers expressed the entrepreneurial and business acumen of the Russian people. Over a period of time, they made a remarkable record for themselves in commerce. Some parallels have even been drawn with the Calvinists in the West. As to the other side, the Dreyfus reform has been ascribed, in addition to the obvious reason, to the influence of the more learned Ukrainian clergy and to the desire of the Muscovite church and state to adapt their practices to include the Ukrainians and the white Russians, with a further view, according to S. Zenkovsky, to a possible expansion to the Balkans and Constantinople. Even more rewarding as an explanation of the Raskol has been the emphasis on the ritualism and formalism of Muscovite culture. The old believers were, characteristically, great Russians. That is, Muscovite Russians, and not, for example, Ukrainians. To them, the perfectly correct form and the untainted tradition and religion could not be compromised. This, and their arrogant but sincere belief in the superiority of the Muscovite Church and its practices, go far to explain the rebellion. The reformers exhibited a similar formalism. In spite of the advice of such high authorities as the Patriarch of Constantinople, Nikon and his followers refused to allow any local practice or insignificant variation to remain. Thus, on their part, confusing the letter with the spirit. As we've noted, the Russian church had developed, especially in the direction of religious ceremony, ritualism, and formalism, for which the believers served as a great unifying bond and a tangible basis for their daily life. It has been estimated, for instance, that the Tsar often spent five hours or more a day in church. Even visiting Orthodox hierarchs complained of the length of Russian services. The appearance of the old belief, as well as the excessively narrow and violent reaction to it, indicated that in Muscovy, religious content in certain respects lagged behind religious form. The Raskol can thus be considered a tribute to the hold that Muscovite culture had on the people, and, as time made apparent, to its staying power. It also marked the dead end of that culture. Milyukov and others have argued that, because of the split, the Russian church lost its most devoted and active members, and in effect, its vitality. Those who had the courage of their convictions joined the old belief. The cowardly and the listless remained in the establishment, even if we allow for the exaggeration implicit in this view, and note further that many of the most ignorant and fanatical must have also joined the dissenters, the loss remains great. It certainly made it easier for Peter the Great to, te to treat the church in a high-handed manner. Well, I hope you enjoyed that passage. Uh, the next few podcasts on this will be on thought and literature, and the arts, as well as education, and the Western influences on Muscovite Russia. And I hope you come back uh, and listen to the regular podcast on the growth of Peter and Sophia's reign, which will be out this Friday. 
and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please visit the website at russianrulers.podhoster.com or go to our Facebook fan club page at Russian Rulers History Podcast. Leave a comment, make a suggestion, ask a question, and as always, Tasvidanya Ispasiba Bolshoya.